This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And today's topic, so that we can get right to that, is how an author's personal experience weighs upon their writing. Uh, Essentially, you are not your readers, and we're going to get into that topic, but first, I want to find out how Taylor's travels about Texas have been while uh, she's out supporting her book, her new book, Liar's Paradox. They are not over. (laughs) (laughs) I've got one more event coming up in Houston on the 26th. If I have any Houston listeners, please come see me at Murder by the Book, 430 on Saturday the 26th. It would be awesome. Fill the room. Um... But yeah, it's it's almost over. The biggest of it is almost over. And is this something that's invigorating for you, exhausting for you, combination of the two? It's a combination of the two. I'm an introvert, but I also so if when you're an introvert, it means you get your energy from being alone and being around a lot of people takes your energy away from you. So for me, events are exhausting, but they're exhausting for two reasons. The first is that, and the other is I get incredibly adrenalized while it's going on. It's almost like um, I'm walking. I'm not really here. I'm here, but not here because I'm just like really hyped up and I enjoy it. I love, love, love being able to be around fans and readers and just to be able to talk about the books. And so leading up to an event, there's just dread. Oh my God, this is going to be so exhausting. And then in the event, I'm like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. I'm loving this so much. When when can we do another one? And then afterwards, (laughs) I'm stare at the ceiling and just go, uh. (laughs) So what's the dread? I'm curious about the dread. Why? What specifically are you dreading? So I, when I'm not doing events, I have my routines, my work. I, you know, Events interrupt everything, and it means having to go places and do things, and I have to put brain power to remembering where I'm going and what I need to do, and I need to completely slip out of stare at a screen, uh, be in the story, into, hi, everybody, I'm here! (laughs) And so um, it's just, it's that dread of, it's this slip changing modes And all the work that I know I need to do and I'm not getting done and I don't want to leave it because I just want to keep working on it and I'm just going to have to set it all aside. So it's it's the reluctance to change, really, I think is what it is. And and then once I'm there, I'm just like, I don't want to go back to writing. I want to do this forever and ever. (laughs) (laughs) Is it invigorating, though, to to just be around people that love your books and and just want to tell you that? Absolutely. In the moment. It's just, it's, it's so awesome. But then once I'm alone again, I just, I, I have, I'm like a battery that's just been completely drained and it takes me a little while to charge that back up again, which is why after an event, I can't just get right back into writing. It takes me a while to get back into it because I've got nothing, I've got nothing left, but I love it. I love doing it. So if all I had to do was events and no writing, it would be perfect for writing and no events. <laughs> 
right. Now, with that as our chit-chat, let's get on to the main topic. Okay. So I have been, obviously, with Liar's Paradox, with the Liar's Paradox launch, doing, you know, promotion and stuff. And I get requests, not as many now, because the, the further you're into this, the less people actually want to hear from you outside of the book because you're not new anymore and you've said what you've had to say. So you, I still get requests for blogs, for things like that, and they're so time-consuming for me, way more time-consuming than doing podcasts because Steve does all the hard work. Um, <laughs> so it's like struggling to come up with different takes on what you've already done before, and often they want evergreen blogs, which means you're not talking about the book per se, you're talking about your life or how it ties into the book. And, you know, I can only do that so, so many times. So I needed to do this blog for a pretty big book site type thing. And they wanted a longer essay type piece where it had more to do with me and my life and how the characters um are based, not based off of me, but how my life has affected these characters. And um, I kind of proposed that as a topic because when the Informationist and the Monroe books came out, we had this thing where people were constantly conflating me with the character and it annoyed me so bad. Um, and then I realized, well, you know, it's kind of a compliment in its own way that these things, these characters feel so alive to them. And well, you know, if doctors write medical thrillers and you know, former special forces write military thrillers. Well, of course, the cult member must be writing cult member thrillers. <laughs> <laughs> cult baby, I should say. Members are people who join. I never joined. Then as this next series came out, Jack and Jill, who are twins, they're assassins. Um, obviously, that was not based on my life. But there's a lot of... Um, sibling rivalry, a lot of family dysfunction. And so, of course, as soon as this book published, the questions came back. How much of your life growing up in the cult, growing in all, all over the world, has affected, you know, these characters? Like, how much did you draw on that past to, to make these characters? And I was ready for it this time. I knew it was going to happen. So when I proposed this blog, it was with that in mind. And I'd given a lot of thought to the subject. And that's what I wanted to talk about today is how your life, what you live, can affect your writing in ways that you didn't realize it was going to affect your writing. So the first, I'm third culture kid, which is a term that it's kind of like a socio sociologist, people who go in and study whatever people um, coined to describe, it started with missionary kids. So kids who were um, born abroad with American parents who were not raised in the country of their passport or their parents' culture, but they weren't really part of the culture that they were living in. They had a, their um, things that they, traits that they all shared, experiences that they all shared, it didn't matter where they were, what their parents, you know, were part of. If they came back to their home countries, they had difficulty adjusting. Um, they felt like outsiders. There were some some things that were common among all of them, and gradually that term got to be expanded to you know military brats, diplomats, children, um, English teachers who raised their kids abroad. And it's not just Americans; it's 
other other nationalities who maybe come to the United States or families where the father might be European and the mother might be from South Africa and the kids grow up in Borneo. So it's basically kids who have no root, no home. And I'm one of those. My my parents were, I'm, I'm American, my parents were American, I was not raised in the United States, I grew up in communes, and this absolutely affected my view of the world. Um, I, I traveled a lot, I saw a lot of things, and even though I wasn't out in the, 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 the country, you know, I did not have that freedom to just go and explore and do and be, I still experienced things that people in the United States maybe if they haven't traveled much, wouldn't experience, right? So I'm, I'm a third culture kid. That's my baseline. And I think everybody who goes into a story writing is going to have a baseline. Steve, you are a football fan for, oh God, I'm not even going to say in case I get it wrong. Um, you live in Florida. Uh, that's sort of, you, you've worked in industries that deal with finance and tech. That's your baseline. So when you have a baseline, there are things that you're going to automatically know, understand, perceive that seem second nature to you. Just duh, that people who haven't had those experiences don't have similar baselines would not. And so when the information is first published and all these people were conflating me with the character, call it saying that the character was born in a cult, just like I was, and it made me so mad. Um, <laughs> they weren't, they were wrong, but they weren't entirely wrong. They were seeing something of me put in that book. It's just, it wasn't the cult stuff. It was the third culture kid stuff. And when they were putting, like, there are people who go, oh, well, Monroe has missionary parents. And to them, that's just a very thinly veiled reference to my own upbringing. But I never identified with her religious upbringing. Like, for me, giving her missionary parents was 100% purely practical. And the reason for that is, having lived in Cameroon and Equatorial Guinea, where this story takes place, there really isn't much of an American presence there. Um, the, I mean, of course, you're going to have diplomats with the uh, embassy. Uh, at the time, Equatorial Guinea didn't even have an American embassy um, or consulate or anything. You had to do everything through Cameroon. Um, but, you know, the, the business people, the, the foreign community of Western foreigners, I mean, I'm not talking about foreigners from Nigeria or foreigners from Gabon or any of the other locations like the the Western foreigners that were there, there really weren't a lot of Americans. Those who stayed long enough to have kids and raise their kids there, put them in international schools, were European. And the ones who were American, the most logical reason for someone of Monroe's age to have lived in Cameroon for as long as she had, she had missionary parents. Duh. So to me, as a third culture kid, it never crossed my mind that that needed to be explained. It just is. But for people who maybe didn't have that kind of breadth in their travel experience and are looking at me going, cult kid, 
missionary parents, that must be the connection. Well, that made more sense. But because I never explained it, they didn't have any reason to think otherwise, right? So something similar happened in uh, the Liar's Paradox, but that one went out to beta readers, right? And uh, on my pa- some of the patrons that um, <clears throat> I put that offer out to, to those who felt that they could uh, get back with me within a reasonable time and weren't just reading as, a, as an advanced copy, because that's not what it was meant to be. I really needed the feedback. And one of the questions that came back as it relates to Liar's Paradox was another duh to me, but it dawned on me that anybody who hadn't experienced this wouldn't know. But I only realized that after the feedback came in. And that was um, in in one of the scenes when Claire is in Russia and she's desperate, um, she never goes to the U.S. Embassy. And the beta reader is like, why didn't she just go to the U.S. Embassy? Which to them is a very logical, reasonable question. And I'm wondering, I don't think this person's ever been to a U.S. Embassy. Because you don't just walk, you can't just walk into a U.S. embassy. The only way you're getting in is if you have a U.S. passport and or you have an appointment or something there. They they, in especially I would assume in Moscow back in the Cold War, you know, there'd be a lot of uh, security and um, not to mention the KGB is watching every single person who goes in there. So for someone in in Claire's position in that story, who doesn't have a U.S. passport on her because she's deep undercover, um, to try and get into a U.S. embassy, there's no, they don't know her from, from Eve. There is no guarantee they're going to ever let her in. And then she would be in a worse situation because she would have been seen trying to get into the U.S. embassy than if she had never gone. To me, that was very, duh, don't, don't you know these things? Because I've traveled. I've, I've been in U.S. embassies. I've had to get into U.S. embassies. I know what it's like. You don't just walk in. But to anyone else, that's a huge plot hole. So those are the types of things that your life experience, whatever it is, your baseline, can create the perception of plot holes. It can create gaps that people don't understand. And the only way to find those, because you're blind to them yourself, the only way to find them is if other people do it first before the book gets published, preferably. <laughs> and so, yeah, that that's that's that. You mentioned that this issue with passports had come from beta readers. What is it? Just one beta reader, or did more than one people catch, or did more than one person catch that? I think it was just one person. But everybody catches different things, right. you know. Like mm-hmm. some people just roll with that, and it doesn't even cross their mind. Like when I'm writing, my goal is to head off all of those questions by answering the issues that people will raise. But if I'm not aware that it would even be a question, then I I can't, right? Right. And and it seems like this is actually a useful lesson for people with regard to getting feedback, because I know a lot of people who, when they get feedback from readers on something like that, they will just, their first reaction is one of, I'm being attacked, and they want to justify what they've written. Was, was that 
your first reaction was, this is crazy, everyone knows this, or was your first reaction, hmm, I wonder if other people don't know this as well? Well, I'm human, right? Mm-hmm. And so this thing that pe- that authors can experience when readers question them can often, I, I still feel those pangs of feeling like I need to justify myself, but I've learned that if somebody's seeing something, it it's there's something there and other people will probably see it too. So it doesn't mean that I did something wrong. It means I had a blind spot. And mm-hmm. so I'm very grateful that they told me that they saw this blind spot. And sometimes the blind spots are due to poor reading comprehension. You know, that happens. But it tells me, okay, maybe I need to be more clear in the thing that they didn't understand, because if they didn't get it, there will probably be other people who didn't get it either. And that is a flip side of another issue. Um, it's, it's really hard to find the balance between over-explaining things and under-explaining things. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read books that assume that I know nothing, and they over-explain everything, and those are so tedious. So I think I have a tendency to go the other direction of just assuming that my my readers are smart. But there are things that is plot-wise that, you know, I just, I, I can't know that they don't know. And um, I tend to not want to over-explain things in the text itself because I feel that that clunks down the, the reading, clunks down the speed and such. So there's there's that too. The which way which way do you go? You know, you can underexplain, which I do sometimes, and overexplain, which I try not to do as much as possible. We were talking a week or so ago, and I noticed because I'd read a couple different early versions of the book, and then read the final version of the book. There was one scene where there was a lot more information that I remembered from previous scenes. And I, th- I thought to myself, this is not the kind of thing that you would normally do. And we talked about that uh, for a little bit. Do you remember that conversation? I do, yes. And, and are you comfortable sharing why you added that additional information? Absolutely. So it was, um, if I remember correctly, it was a scene in which Holden had gone to Frank for details about Claire. And I originally wrote it as if two people already had a baseline understanding of what they were talking about, Um, but also of being mindful that their conversation was being potentially recorded and siphoned up in the, you know, data suction that goes on. So I was staying true to you know, reality in that sense. And um, uh, both my agent and my agent's assistant, my agent's assistant is just really sharp. She's really, really good. That girl is going places. Um, They both felt that it was too obscure, too difficult to follow of really understanding what information was being conveyed. And It took me, I don't even know how many rewrites on that chapter of going over it and over and over it before I felt that it would clarify and make blatantly clear what was being discussed 
to the point that nobody could come at me and say, I don't understand what this chapter is actually there for. Because you don't want to have a chapter that doesn't serve its purpose. Otherwise, it's just blah, 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 and it confuses the reader. And um, I think the biggest complaints that I've been getting so far, besides people who are just like, oh, this is boring, and I didn't like it, which, you know, happens with everything that I write. They like the story, but they felt that it was too, it was very difficult to understand. And that confused me first as well, because I've really gone out of my way to simplify the language that I use. Like my first books were a lot more literary in the um, the largeness of the words and <laughs> obscureness of some of the words and the length of sentences. And I've gone as far into the opposite direction as I'm capable of doing, of writing shorter sentences, simple words, which is so much harder because to convey the same emotions, the same thought processes in very flash sound bites is incredibly difficult. But and so I thought that's what they were referring to at first. But the more I think about it, I realize that's not it. It's that this story is, the details of the story are dribbled out. You have to pay attention and follow. And it doesn't make sense until you get all the way to the end. And it all kind of comes together and you're like, oh, I get it. So this this thing of where the story is told in snapshots and flashes and all you're doing is you're seeing these scenes but you don't really know what they mean i think that was hard for some readers to get um but that's that's the style of that story and that's a little bit different than what we're talking about in terms of um you know conveying things that you think people will understand in terms of specifics versus Mm -hmm. a whole story that it really takes a lot of holding multiple pieces in your brain and remembering things for it all to come together in the end. Okay, well, I think we have captured the the topic. We have, we already have our chit-chat for next week, so I'm excited about that. Thank you guys for listening, and we will be back in your ear again next Tuesday. Be with you next week. Thanks for being here. <laughs>